Let's read together Romans 11, 1 through 32. Paul has been asking this question, what about Israel? What about my countrymen? Is God done with them? Is there no more purpose for them? They've rejected the gospel. They had all the privileges. That's the, that's the question he's been asking all the way back at the beginning of chapter 9, at the beginning of this section. Is, is God through with Israel? Has God's word failed? Has his promises failed? Has his faithfulness become unfaithfulness? And Paul has been answering that question in different ways throughout chapters 9 and 10. And now again, comes back to that. And notice, he asked that question in verse 1. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, kindness toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. 
For if ye were cut off from what was a not by what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultified, cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest ye be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, probably a better translation is a hardening in part or two-part has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so that they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, on October 27th, 1944, then President Bill Clinton, while addressing the Legislative Assembly of the State of Israel, cited one of his former Southern Baptist pastors when he said, if you abandon Israel, God will never forgive you. It is God's will that Israel, the biblical home of the people of Israel, continue forever and ever. Now, besides the fact that it's never good to get your theology from Bill Clinton, I did say that, and I will say that again. He's not the president. While it's not good to get your theology from Bill Clinton or President Trump or President Biden or any of the other presidents, for that matter, it is also indicative of much, much pronounced 20th century theology that has so influenced our politics that we have not learned to read passages like Romans chapter 11 properly. We have been influenced and leavened by the myriads of people who have told us through current events how we are to read the Bible. 20 years ago, I was in the restroom of a restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina, and two guys... Um, in the the restroom were um, saying to one another, I don't know, why do we support Israel? Um, and, and why do we do what we do with Israel? And, and I proceeded to give them a little theology lesson there in the men's room. I'm, I'm sure they didn't appreciate it, but I thought it might be helpful. They were also looking at current events. They were hearing things that people like President Clinton said, and, and they were wondering, uh, are these God's people? Are those now in the state of Israel and Palestine, are they God's people? Are they that God's special chosen people and does God have a future plan for them? Let me say this this morning. I do not think, I understand you can disagree with me on this. I do not think the Apostle Paul's purpose in writing Romans 11 is to tell you here's the future for ethnic Israel in the state of Palestine. I think the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome that was predominantly Gentile, 
because many of the Jews had been banished from the Roman Empire at this point, and there was a danger of Gentile converts demeaning Paul's fellow countrymen of that day and not understanding that God still had a purpose of re-engrafting them back into the church and, and, and he had a purpose and a plan in redemptive history that Paul was crucial to carrying out in his day even as he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Now again, I noted that Paul has set this chapter in the context of chapters 9 through 11. And if you just turn back briefly, you'll see that opening section where Paul is saying that he is uh, burdened in his heart for the salvation of his countrymen. He wished, if it was possible, he could be cut off from Christ so that they might be saved. He knows that that's not a possibility. But he is expressing his deep desire to see his fellow countrymen come to saving faith in the Messiah who was from them. And, and you'll notice again, verse 5, to them belonged the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And then Paul proceeds to ask a number of questions. Has God's word failed? No. And here's the big statement in verse 6 of chapter 9. For not all who are descended from Israel are of Israel. There was always an elect within Israel. Paul himself autobiographically knows that he is among those, even in that day, that God was graciously grafting back in and graciously working so that they would come to faith and trust in Israel's Messiah, Jesus, and be brought into the one church, the one people, Jew and Gentile, in Christ. Let me say this this morning. I should have made this caveat also before we look at this in detail. We always want to read whatever Paul says here in light of what he says in his other epistles. In Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle says that uh, by the death of Christ, God has broken down the middle wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says he has made of the two men one new man in Christ, thus making peace. So Paul, in Ephesians 2, says that he has taken the two men, he has made one new man in Christ, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, in Christ, the true Israel of God. That is indisputable. That is the backbone of Pauline theology on who are the people of God in the new covenant. And the answer is always believing Jews and believing Gentiles who are united to Jesus by faith alone because of the grace of God operative in their lives. There is no other answer. There is no other category. There is no trapdoor. There is no subset that we haven't continued to, to look at. Paul has very clearly made that known in all of his letters, not least of which here in Romans, remember back in chapter 1, he says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Now, I'm going to argue this morning that Paul is not revising that statement. He is not now saying it's to the Jew first, also to the Gentile, and then again to the Jew. He's not saying that. He is teaching a mysterious plan of God's redeeming grace and the way in which God will gather together in one 
those remnant of believing Jews throughout redemptive history and the full number of elect Gentiles, that's us, mostly us, throughout redemptive history into the same body in Christ, into the one tree, the one olive tree. That's Paul's purpose in this. So I want us to consider to that end three things this morning. I want us to consider the people of God's mysterious plan. Secondly, the process of God's mysterious plan. And then the purpose. You got three Ps this morning. The people, the process, and the plan. The people, the prop, I'm sorry, the P, I can't even say it now. Too many Ps. The people, the process, and the purpose of God's mysterious plan. We'll notice there at the beginning of chapter 11 that Paul begins to answer the question that he's been asking recurrently, and he asks it again. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, Paul has had in view his countrymen, the elect Jews of his day who had been scattered throughout the nations, and, and the question that Paul is retouching on here, again, is, is God done with, with ethnic Israel? Now, let me say this this morning, and this is very important that we get this. When we say ethnic Israel, we do not mean that only the physical descendants of Abraham constituted Israel. Let me say this, everyone in the Old Covenant era, anyone, could convert any Gentile by being circumcised and adhering to the religion that God had breathed out in the Old Testament to Israel, anyone could convert and become a full Jew, anyone. It is a misnomer to think that only physical descendants of Abraham constitute Israel. That never was the case, ever, in the Old Covenant. There could be full inclusion into theocratic Israel before Christ came. But Paul understands that there was a theocracy and there was a nation and there were people that dwelt in that nation and they were God's chosen people in the old covenant and they had special promises and they had the worship of God and they had the prophets and they had all of the nurturing blessings of God, the oracles of God. They had circumcision. None of that was meaningless. God had entrusted those things to that people in that place at that time until Christ came. And so naturally, you can understand how the question then arises now that Christ has come, now that he has finished the work of redemption, now that he has ascended to heaven, now that he has established his kingdom, now that he has said, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from this nation, Jesus said this, and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. What nation is that? It's the true Israel. And Jesus himself had said, my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus himself had said to the woman of Samaria in John 4, the time is coming and now is when neither in Jerusalem on, or on this mountain will people worship, but God will be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Jesus had already told us he was not limiting his kingdom to old covenant theocratic Israel. So the question is, had God cast them off forever? Was there no hope for their salvation? And Paul in answering that question, is now going to explain who are the people of God's mysterious plan. Notice there his answer. He says, by no means. And he's going to give two answers to this question. The first is an autobiographical rationale, and the second is a doctrinal rationale. Notice this, Paul says, by no means, for I myself 
am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. You see, Paul understood if God was done with the totality of old covenant Israel, if there was no hope of salvation for any, uh, we'll say for the sake of this conversation, ethnic Jews, if, if, if there's no hope of salvation for theocratic Israel now that Christ has finished the work of redemption, Paul's saying, then I wouldn't be saved. I am part of that body. I am a, a trophy of God's grace. Paul understood that of all people, he should not have been a believer. He didn't credit that to anything he did. In fact, notice back down in verse 6, he says, if it's by grace, and it is only on the election of God's grace, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would be no longer grace. Paul understood that when God saves someone, it is merely by grace. And that his salvation out of the unbelief he was in as if a branch cut off and now grafted back in was merely by God's sovereign electing grace. Paul will go further and he will root this in that great remnant principle. Notice verse 5. Underline this, write it down, memorize it, talk about it. Paul says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There's a remnant. Now, Paul, in this chapter, is going to go back into the Old Testament, and he's going to give a remnant theology. He's going to explain now, not just autobiographically, what the answer is, but he's going to explain doctrinally. What is the rationale that God has not cut off his people? Well, there's always a remnant. There was always a remnant in Israel. And notice that, that he will appeal to the days of Elijah. Notice there in the second part of verse 2, do you not know what the scripture says to Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophet. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left. They seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Why, why is Paul appealing to this? He's saying in Elijah's day, there was a remnant. There was a remnant of true believers within Israel. The rest rejected the gospel. It was always a remnant. And then notice, he will go down and he will quote several Old Testament passages. I want you to turn over though. I want you to turn over back to chapter 9. Notice Paul has already begun that remnant doctrine at the beginning of this section. Um, and I'm sorry. Um, he says to them, um, there in verse 23, that he has made known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews also, but also the Gentiles. And then notice, notice verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Now, Paul has quoted Isaiah. Only a remnant will be saved. Paul has appealed to the example of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the 7,000, the faithful remnant. Paul is not deviating at any point in this chapter 
from teaching that only a remnant will be saved. Now, I, I once had a pastor who believed eschatology that says everybody's going to become a Christian one day, and he rejected the remnant principle and, and tried to convince me. I said, I said to this pastor, I said, now, if, if a woman has a, a piece of embroidery or fabric and, and she uses the bulk of it and she has a little bit left, what is that? And he said, well, there's no reason that the bigger piece can't be the remnant. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. A remnant is what's left over. It's, it's the small remains. And everywhere in Romans 9 through 11, Paul says there's a remnant. He's appealed to Isaiah. He's appealed to Elijah. He's appealed to himself. He is part of that remnant. And what he is saying is that the people of God and God's mysterious plan are only those that God has chosen by his grace, not just of the Jews, of the Gentiles. Notice what he does here in chapter 11. He says, he says in verse 5, so too at this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. I want to read this to you. Listen to this. William Hendrickson, the Dutch theologian of the 20th century, said there was always a remnant according to the election of grace. At the present time, there is a remnant. From chapters 9 through 11, Paul is speaking about the true remnant. Chapter 9, verse 27, 11, 5. He says that thought occurs again and again. The remnant is defined as the true Israel. Back in 9, 6, they're not all Israel who are of Israel. The elect, the true, the true Israel. They are called the children of promise in 9.8. Not the physical seed, he says, but the children of promise are counted, the remnant, the elect. Paul will say again in uh, chapter 9, verse 7 and verse 29, that there is a seed, a, a, a remnant, a seed, a, a chosen people within Old Covenant Israel. He will speak of them as those on whom God has had compassion in 9.15. The people he foreknew in 11.2, true believers in 10.11. The 7,000 men in Elijah's time and the many that were added in his day. The remnant according to the election of grace. Now, don't miss this. That is Paul's great burden, is to press home that even in his day, there remained a remnant of elect Israelites that he was longing to see come to faith in Jesus, who rejected the gospel, who had been cut off from the olive tree, who had been, um, who had been separated and alienated from the promises of God and the hope of God still dealing with that nation. And yet Paul says, and notice this, go to the end of our section this morning, notice this. Paul says, he says in verse 30, for just as you Gentiles are at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown you, they may now receive mercy. You see, Paul is longing to see that remnant of his fellow countrymen grafted back in, in his day through the preaching of the gospel. That is the overarching desire of Paul's heart. It is in accord with the theology of Scripture. He is rooted in the Old Testament. 
He has explained it autobiographically. He has given the doctrinal rationale that there is only a remnant that will ever be saved. Now, that sets the context. I noted to you that this section is really an example of the mysterious plan of God. Where do I get that? Notice verse 25. Paul says, lest ye be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Now, we're going to unpack that mystery. We're going to now secondly see the process of God's mysterious plan. One of the really interesting things in this section that oftentimes gets overlooked is that Paul is setting out this process by which God takes the elect Jews and the elect Gentiles and how throughout redemptive history he is going to bring them into one people to form the true Israel of God. That's his purpose. And as I've already noted, he is talking predominantly to a Gentile church because as I told you already, In around 5 AD, most of the Jews, not all, but many, were banished from Rome. And so the better part of those that constituted the Roman church, though there were some Jewish believers within this church, they were Gentiles. And Paul is explaining to them, listen, let me unfold for you the mystery, the plan of how God, what manner God is going to gather together into one the Jews and the Gentiles that he has purposed in himself to bring to saving faith in Jesus. And here is the process. The Jews were part of the natural olive tree, the one tree, the church, the old covenant people of God. They were natural branches in that one organic tree. That tree is the true Israel of God. They were, they were branches in it. They had the promises. They had the patriarchs. They had all of the Abrahamic covenant rooting them and establishing them and God just heaping his blessings upon them and urging them to come to him. All of the privileges. And Paul says, they were broken off that you might be grafted in. Now, When were they broken off? Well, I've already told you that Jesus says to the Jews, just as he's about to go to the cross, he says, the kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. What nation is that? It's the true Israel. It's the kingdom of God made up of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. And Paul is now telling this predominantly Gentile church of of predominantly Gentile believers, listen, don't forget God's process of how you've been included into the one olive tree. That's going to become critical. Paul's going to make some really very important applications about not being haughty. We're going to talk about that. But as he explains this, what he says is that they were broken off. And now, as Paul saw it, myriads of Gentiles were believing and being grafted into the true Israel. They were becoming the people of God, constantly grafted in. Notice, Paul says in verse 19, you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. He says, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand through faith, so do not become proud. 
It is possible. It is possible. Paul knew in his day, especially, it was possible for believing Gentiles to look down with disdain on the Jewish people. By the way, this needs to be said, and please hear this this morning. If you don't believe that Romans 11 is teaching a massive conversion of ethnic Israels at the end of time, that's not anti-Semitic. You know that. It's not anti-Semitic. In fact, Paul's saying, don't look down on the natural branches that were broken off. He's telling them in his day, lest you be broken off. Because there's only one way of salvation. That's what Paul's saying. That's the big point. He's saying there only ever was one way of salvation. There only was one way of salvation, faith in the promised Redeemer. There is no other way. And so we have no right to boast if we're believing in him. And Paul goes back again to verse 6. He says, if it was by works, then grace would no longer be grace. And that means in this process, if you and I have come to trust in Christ, that we have zero reason to think anything of ourselves, and we have zero reason to look down on anyone, Jewish people or otherwise, who have not believed the gospel, because our engrafting into the people of God, into the true Israel, was by faith and by faith alone in Christ alone, and that was merely by God's electing grace. That's Paul's big point here. Now, in that process, though, he continues. Notice this. He says, and and this is such a, a beautiful, beautiful statement. Go back with me to verse 13. Notice he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. Again, his day, my ministry, present time, remnant according to the election of grace, my fellow Jews, saying that, I'm writing to you Gentiles about them. Notice this, he says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, he will say back again in verse 11, He says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, here's the process. Theocratic Israel is broken off. Gentiles are grafted in. Elect Jews, some of them become jealous of God's grace to these Gentiles that he is no longer showing to the nation. And by that jealousy, Paul says, some of them are grafted back in. And you have this beautiful process in redemptive history. Elect Gentiles, elect Jews. This is the manner by which God is gathering together in one, one new man in Christ. Um, O. Palmer Robertson picks up on this at the very end. Notice verse 30 and 31, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy. Verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient that they may now receive mercy. Listen to this. Robertson says the threefold now of these concluding verses indicates that Paul's central concern continues to be the present response of Israel. Gentiles now have obtained mercy. Jews now have been disobedient that they may now obtain mercy. The sentiment of verse 32, notice that, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all 
That's Jews and Gentiles. It's confined them all to disobedience that he may have mercy on them. Robertson says that that strengthens the current significance of the gospel for the Jews and the Gentiles. God has shut up all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. Now, having said that, and let me say this this morning, um, there's no argument about that being the flow of this chapter. No one, no, no theologian who knows scripture at all argues with that. The question becomes, where is this moving and how is it resolved? And really where this is moving is to Paul's language about uh, up to the fullness of the Gentiles being grafted in. And then his statement in verse 26, and many English translations unfortunately have a temporal nature to them, and they say, and so, and then all Israel will be saved. Um, Let me set out three views of verse 1126 for you this morning without boring you. It's important we do this. And then I'm going to tell you what I think it means. The first view is the majority view, and that is that Paul's saying at the end of this process, there is going to be some really large mass conversion of ethnic Israelites, and it's going to be a glorious testimony to God re-engrafting almost the whole nation or the whole nation. Um, While I do not hold that view, I'm going to tell you this morning, if that happens, I'm going to be real happy, and everything's going to be just fine. You're like, oh, you took that one away from me. Nobody's going to be upset about that. I don't think it teaches that. That is the majority view. Some of my theological heroes hold that view. Charles Hodge held it. Jonathan Edwards held it. Gerhardus Voss held it. Sinclair Ferguson holds it. It is the widespread view of 1126. The other option is that what Paul is saying in 1126 is that he is talking about the culmination of the process in his day and throughout the rest of the New Covenant era. Gentiles, Jews are cut off, Gentiles are brought in. The elect remnant of Israel is provoked to jealousy. They're grafted back in. You fear lest you be broken off. This is how God is bringing together these people in one, in one new true Israel. And then the way in which 1126 should read, and the ESV gets this right, I think, is and in this way or in this manner or by this process. I'm going to bore you with Greek. It's kai, hutosh, you don't care, but it never means and then, ever. It never says and then all Israel is going to be saved. It always means in this manner, by this process, in this way. And so John Calvin believes that In 1126, all Israel is all elect Jews and Gentiles who have been uh, grafted and re-engrafted back into Christ, into the true Israel of God, and that they themselves form Israel. Um, This is what Calvin says. Paul intended here to set forth the completion of the kingdom of Christ, which is by no means confined to the Jews. It includes the whole world. Calvin says the same manner of speaking we find in Galatians 6.16 where we read him pronouncing blessing on the Israel of God, the true Israel. The Israel of God is what he calls the church, gathered alike from Jews and Gentiles. He sets the people, he he collects them from dispersion in in opposition to the carnal children of Abraham who had departed from the faith. So the second possible way we read this is this is elect Jews and Gentiles, and the culmination of that process. 
The third way we read this is the way that Hendrickson and others have read this, that Paul is still speaking about the elect remnant of Israel. And what he's saying in 1126 is by this process, ultimately, all the true elect remnant of Israel will be ultimately saved throughout redemptive history. I think we have to take it as one of those two. I actually thought about this in preparation for this morning and kind of dreaded preaching this a little bit, um, but, but debated whether to give you options. I almost never do that in preaching. I think at this point you need to know that those are the options. Either Paul's saying there's going to be a mass conversion of ethnic Israelites, or he's saying this is the way in which the true Israel is redeemed and grafted and re-engrafted into the, the, the one olive tree, or he's saying this is the process by which God will gather ultimately all the elect Israel into Christ. I think you have to take the second or third, but if you disagree again, and you want to you say, I think this means mass conversion of Israel, we're all going to be happy. Um, in 1846, a number of ministers from the Church of Scotland, among them Thomas um, Chalmers and Robert Murray McShane, um, engaged in missions in Israel. And they wrote extensively about the importance of bringing the gospel to the Jewish people wherever they were, and they are right in that. I want to say that this morning, whatever you think, and if you disagree with me on any of this, I just hope you just read a lot of stuff and study the different options. Whatever you think, it is incumbent that we have hearts that long for the salvation of Jews and that long for the salvation of Gentiles. And that means what's going on right now in Palestine, if I can speak, by way of contemporary issues, is that our desire ought to be for the protection of the church, for God keeping true believing Jews and Gentiles, whether they are believing Jews in Israel or whether they are believing Jews, uh, Gentiles in Palestine, because there are Christians in those nations. Our desire should be first and foremost for their care and protection. Secondly, our desire should be for the evangelization of the world wherever Jewish people may be, wherever unbelieving Gentiles are. We should care. If I can say this reverently this morning, and please don't miss this, we should care that the gospel tears down the strongholds of Islam in Iran and Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and Jordan and everywhere in the Middle East. And if we don't care about that, then we don't care about what Paul says, that we were grafted in by grace, not by anything that we did that makes us better than them. And if we think the Jewish people are more deserving than them, we have missed what Paul says. And if we think they are more deserving than the Jewish people, we have missed what Paul says. You see, it's not that difficult. Paul's overarching purpose in Romans 9 through 11 is the evangelization of the world. The place of the remnant of Israel in that plan, the place of elect Gentiles in that plan, and how God is gathering together in one of the two men and making one new man in Christ. Now, what, very briefly, what is the purpose of this plan? Because Paul has moved us to the, to the, to the end of this process, and now he brings us back down. And notice, again, I'm going to 
recite these verses, verse 30 and verse 31, as, at, just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, that's the entire old covenant era, all the nations disobedient, but now have received mercy because of Israel's disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy for God has consigned all to disobedience so that, don't miss this, he may have mercy on all his people, on all elect Jews and Gentiles, on all those who would believe in Christ. What is the purpose? Number one, Paul is showing the great covenant faithfulness of God. God has not cast off his people. The Lord saved Paul. He saved other Jews in Paul's day. He has saved Jews throughout the new covenant era, and he will continue to do so until Christ comes again. The Lord never ceases to be faithful to his promises. The promises he made to Abraham were always going to include Jews and Gentiles, and those promises will never be kept so as not to include that remnant of believing Israel and that remnant of elect Gentiles. His purposes and his plans will never fail. Someone said to me recently, so you think Romans 11 is just saying God's going to save Jews and Gentiles. Well, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. I think, again, he's giving a process by which he is doing that, how he is gathering together in one. He's not merely just saying he's going to save Jews and Gentiles. He says that everywhere. He's saying that he is going to remember his covenant promises. Notice again, he says, for the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but regards the election, they're beloved. Verse 28, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He doesn't change in that. And so we should long to see him do that in our day, even as Paul longed to see him do it in his day. Number one, God's mysterious plan is that he may show his covenant faithfulness. Number two, it's that he may make all see their need for his saving grace. He has confined all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. That means, and I'm going to come back to this again, in the middle of this chapter, when he says, do not become proud, but fear. If you're a believer, if you are a Gentile by nature, if you have trusted in Christ out of a group other than the Jewish people, then we are not to be haughty. We are not to be proud. We are to fear. We are not to despise the kindness of God as Israel did. Um, because it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And what Paul says in verse 32 is God is so flat in the playing field that everyone, whether they are Jewish or Gentile, would know that they have been disobedient, that they do not deserve salvation, that it is all of his free mercy and grace, that it's all built on his kindness. I want us to look at this as we close. Notice verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. What does Paul mean by that? 
I want to read to you what I find to be really the most beautiful meditation on this as we close. Sinclair Ferguson reflecting on these verses says, the kindness of God doesn't lead us to arrogance and self-sufficiency, the demeaning of others. The kindness of God leads us to repentance, Romans 2, 4. To say, Lord, I've sinned grievously. Have mercy on me. And the hope of your grace enables me to come to you and say, Lord, I will humble myself and I will live for your glory. And so Paul says in Romans eleven twenty, if because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith, do not be haughty, but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Ferguson says the evidence that you were saved is that you keep on responding to the kindness of God. The evidence that you are saved is that you keep on responding to the kindness of God. Have a humble spirit to those who are as yet unbelievers, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, especially here in this context, to Paul's fellow countrymen. And Ferguson says, otherwise you will be cut off. My friends, Judas had a card in his hip pocket, and that card said apostolic treasurer. But he didn't continue in the kindness because he never trusted in the kindness. Jesus is the kindness of God. Jesus is the kindness of God. Because what makes all of this process possible and what makes your salvation possible is that God in his eternal kindness would send his son to hang on the cross for that remnant of Jews throughout redemptive history and that those that elect number of Gentiles throughout redemptive history, that he would stand in our place, that he would tear down the middle wall of hostility, that he would destroy the alienation and the enmity between God and, and those he's saving, that he would gather together in one by himself and by his own work would gather together in one the new Israel, the true Israel of God, and that he would continue this process until he displays at the end of time the glorious fulfillment of this mystery that he is bringing even now into fruition so that none of us would ever be able to say, look what I did, or they deserve it because of what they are by nature, but that all have been committed to disobedience that he might have mercy on all of them. I want to just exhort you this morning with a couple things. First, I want to encourage you not to, um, while God is sovereign over every event that happens at every second in every country of the world, and he is sovereign over Israel uh, becoming a state in 1948 in Palestine, and he is sovereign over the Palestinians where they are in the Gaza Strip. Do not... Do not try to read your Bible in light of whatever event is happening right in front of you in your life. Because what that teaches us is that I think it's more about me and about what's going on in my life than what God has set out in redemptive history. Number two, I would encourage you to remember what Paul says in verse six, that the salvation that we have in Christ is merely by grace. It's not anything that we ever did, are doing now, or ever will do. And if we think otherwise, we do not understand salvation by grace. That's Paul's big principle. Number three, I want to exhort us that we would not, related to that, ever be haughty or think by some superiority because of something we've done 
we are somehow deserving of being grafted into the true Israel of God. We're not. He says, do not despise the kindness of God. And then number four, and this is the big one, we should have a heart for the salvation of the elect remnant of Jewish people and the salvation of the elect Gentiles. And that heart should manifest itself in our support of missions here in this country and foreign missions throughout the world. You know, while I may not advance this chapter as some big futuristic hope for ethnic Israel, God is saving, God is saving those Jews and those Gentiles that he has purposed in eternity to save. And Paul has said right in the middle of this section, how can they call on him whom they have not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they're sent? And so we must be supporting missionaries. We must have an increasing desire to give our time and energy and money in supporting world missions because that is the heart of Paul at the beginning of Romans 9, throughout chapter 10, and into chapter 11, and it ought to be our heart too. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's um, close with prayer, and then we are going to sing together um, that great missionary hymn this morning, Arise, O God, and Shine. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have grafted us in by your grace. Lord, we did not deserve it. We are by nature disobedient, foolish, alienated, hostile, enemies to you in our minds. We were by nature children of wrath as the rest. And we acknowledge this morning, O oh God, that uh, the Jewish people have been confined to disobedience, but we praise you that you have confined all to disobedience, that you may have mercy and saving mercy on everyone that you have chosen in Christ. Oh God, we pray that you would make us a people who never despise your kindness, who rest our souls on your mercy and grace, who trust uh, thankfully and humbly in you through Jesus Christ. And we pray, our God, that you would send salvation to that elect number of Jews that you have chosen for yourself. Lord, would you send missionaries wherever the Jewish people may, may be on this planet? We pray that you would send missionaries, as we have said this morning, to the Middle East and to China, to Venezuela, to Somalia, to those very difficult and hostile Gentile nations. Oh God, we pray that you would send the saving light of Christ to every nation under heaven and gather your people together in one. We pray that you would move us to be praying for that and laboring for that great and glorious day when you will show how you have gathered together all Israel in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.